when we speak to investors and colleagues and things like that, most people think that the fact that oil and gas fell in the last decade has been a huge headwind to wind and solar. And they say, well, finally, now that energy prices are going up, wind and solar will be so much more competitive that it'll actually increase adoption. Instead, we're starting to see write-offs of wind and solar assets because people are realizing on the manufacturer side, they just can't produce these assets anymore now that we have an energy crisis. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. A new world order is emerging, and in our global macro series, I, along with my co-host, Jem Kassang, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today is one of the most sought-out people when it comes to understanding the global natural resource shift we're witnessing right now. So please enjoy our conversation with managing partner at Goring and Rosenzweig, Adam Rosenzweig. Adam, welcome and thank you so much for joining Jim and I today for what I'm sure will be an incredibly eye-opening and insightful conversation as part of our global macro series. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to it. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. I thought I would start our conversation a little bit different today in kind of a pop quiz style uh, fashion, but with only one question where I'm sure your answer will set up for lots of interesting avenues to explore. And the question is this, from a scale of 1 to 2030, how confident are you about the ESG policies of today? Oh my goodness! What what a loaded question. Look, I, I think that um, the ESG movement over the last ten years has had a huge distortive effect of capital on capital uh, in the U.S. and no, and, and really in Europe. I mean, it, to the extent that it's a big deal here in the U.S., it's even more so across Europe, uh, with a lot of funds having explicit mandates and things of that nature. And you know, I'm sure we'll talk all about it today. Uh, but what that has really done is that's curtailed and constrained capital into a lot of the more traditional uh, energy industries, notably you know, oil, gas, and coal. Um, and that's really having a huge supply impact now. And so you're starting to see uh, you know, capital budgets that are down, in some cases, 70% from their sort of pre-COVID um, levels. Uh, they're starting to make a rebound now, but it's not nearly as fast as what anyone thinks. And I think a big part of that uh, is the fact that the ESG pressures are still very much in place. And so when oil was 20 and you know, 
ultimately went negative in April of 2020, but let's call it you know 20 on a month end basis. Um, most investors that you spoke to and analysts said, well, once it hits 30 or 40 or 50, I mean, remember the talk that the shale companies all, you know, oil is a, in a bear market because the shell companies all make so much money at $40. Well, that came and went and 50 came and went and here we are at 100. And a lot of these companies aren't, aren't really responding with higher drilling budgets. That's because there's still this huge ESG pressure. And none of that would matter if the ESG mandates worked. And what I mean by that is, you know, if wind and solar and electric vehicles were able to provide this huge amount of baseload, uninterruptible power at very efficient rates, and we could have sort of abundant, cheap energy from renewables, um, then you could constrain the traditional energy industries of capital. Sure. But that's not the case. And we could talk about why that's not the case. So exactly. here we are I mean, in this sort of situation where uh, we're in a full-blown energy crisis and the companies still really don't have uh, the latitude to be able to invest in their assets. Absolutely. And this was just definitely a small teaser question to get get you warmed up here. We're going to dive into many things uh, ESG related and a lot of other interesting things, uh, I hope. But before we do that, since it's your first time on our podcast, perhaps I could just ask you to set the stage a little bit to maybe provide a few highlights from your own uh, background. Um, and then we'll take up all the different topics uh, afterwards, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, so I make up one half of Gehring and Rosenzweig Associates. We are a natural resource uh, investment firm. Uh, so we focus exclusively in the world of natural resources. Uh, I've been doing this basically all my career. My business partner and colleague, Lee, who you might see in the background here, uh, we all work together in a big uh, open office, um, has been doing this since the early 1990s. He started managing uh, the Prudential and then later the Prudential Jenison Natural Resources Funds from 1991 to 2005, uh, developed a fantastic track record, best in the industry in the resource space. And then in 2005, went to a hedge fund based here in New York called Chilton Investment Company and ran the Chilton Global Resources Fund for about 10 years. I joined him in 2007 and have been working uh, for him and now with him uh, ever since. And in 2015, at the end of 2015, we were at that point three, four years into a fairly substantial bear market and resources. And we're value investors, we're contrarian investors. And we were looking at the fundamentals and we were saying, look, I understand why the market's in a bear market today, but we think that the bear market is nearing an end and we wanna make sure we have maximum exposure to that. And so we decided to leave Chilton at the end of 2015. We returned uh, our clients' money and we started Gehring and Rosenzweig in 2016. And what we felt was the bottom of the resource markets. And um, we can talk about our investment style and sure. things like that. We're, we're value and contrarian. And when you're those two things, uh, you can certainly be early and we're often early. So we're probably a little early there too. Although, you know, I think in retrospect with COVID aside, most commodities basically did bottom at the end of 15, beginning of 16. Uh, you know, oil was $27 February of 2016. Uh, you know, copper made its lows at the end of 15, gold as well. Um, and then, you know, there's there's been a huge amount of volatility and pullbacks and, and what have you. It hasn't felt like a bull market, but in retrospect, when the history is written, it probably, that'll have been the start of the bull market. Um, so now we manage about you know $350 million. Uh, we're growing very quickly. Uh, we're certainly not as big as we used to be, but that's largely because capital flows into the space are still little to none. In fact, you know, if you look from 2021 to today, 
when oil stocks have doubled and tripled, you know, the, the amount of money that's gone into oil ETFs, uh, oil stock ETFs has basically been nothing. And in fact, in some months, it's actually been negative. Um, so, you know, we just haven't seen the capital be put to work. And that's where the opportunity is today, because the fundamentals are good. And there's still no money in the space. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, I want to pick up on what you just said about you'd like to be early, because that's one of the things that I've noticed also um, by following your work. And I remember you saying uh, at some point that what what you and Lee uh, aimed to do really is to write about things that maybe others won't be writing about until a year from now. So from my point of view, I would love to go back maybe four or five years and just ask you if you can give us a little glimpse into what you were writing about back then and kind of tie that in and then we bring it up more to to where we are today, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you go back, let's say four or five years, so one of the things that we were talking about that we were very early in talking about uh, probably four or five years ago, which now has become uh, a lot more um, of the mainstream view, is the idea and this might surprise you because we've been talking a lot about energy, but we'll talk about copper, is the idea that copper is this you know, really green metal uh, and that if you want to have any type of a renewable rollout, it's going to take a huge amount of copper. And at the time, you know, copper was in a, in a very severe bear market. Um, it bottomed at $1.50 a pound. Uh, it, money was staying away from the space and, and it was viewed, uh, I would say, by ESG investors as you know, a very dirty, extractive industry, really no different... I don't think there's a huge differentiation placed across mining. And the idea that it would be instrumental in um, a wind and solar and electric vehicle rollout uh, was not on anyone's radar screen. And I should point out, we didn't make our investments in the copper space based on that. We really made our investments in the copper space based on the idea that supply was, uh, there had been no major discoveries across the last 10 years. And, you know, copper deposits take a long time to bring online. So you go from discovery to proving up resource and reserve, to building the mine, to bringing it online. So you have a pretty good line of sight. You know, if you haven't made the discoveries 10 years ago, you're not going to be bringing on the new supply now. Uh, and so you had this big supply problem. The existing mines were beginning to age. And then we started to look at all these different tranches of demand, including the fact that more of the world was electrifying in general, including the fact that the way people were modeling China was completely off base. People were looking at China and saying, look, China consumes 50% of the world's copper. It's not 50% of the world's GDP, so it must be over-consuming. That was not the right way to look at it. You had to look at the installed copper base in a country. And you say, look, when a country gets to a per capita GDP of $10,000 per capita, then all of a sudden you're going to need this amount of copper in the system for things like electricity distribution and for things uh, of that nature. And so when you started to do those numbers, China was actually going to get to like 70% of world copper without necessarily over-consuming. So we looked at all these different sources of demand. And then we said, you know, what would really take things off the charts would be to the extent that that we are going down this renewable path, if we're wrong about the um, the ultimate energy efficiencies of renewables, or if we make a policy policy mistake, if we're right about the underlying fundamentals of renewables, but we decide to push forward with it anyway, which is basically what happened, that would have a huge tailwind to copper demand. So we were talking about copper as a green metal. In fact, I think we called it the ultimate green metal back in 2016, maybe early 2017. Uh, and that was really ahead of uh, ahead of the curve. Uh, more recently in 2019, right before COVID, 
we uh, developed a huge amount, and we were talking, you know, before we started recording about uh, machine learning and neural networks and things of that nature. We set out to answer a question uh, that's very pertinent today and was very pertinent then as well, which is what has driven productivity changes in the shales? And what does that tell us about the future? Because you have to understand, and depending on where your listeners are listening from, it, it, it will be more or less known to them, the only major source of oil supply growth in the non-OPEC world over the last decade has been the United States. Everywhere else has been flat to down. Canada and Brazil are growing a little bit, but that's offsetting declines in other places. Um, and of that, it's all come from the shales. So understanding the trends in the shales is really critically important, but no one has really done the work Productivity had grown from 14 to 17, and no one understood why. The industry was telling people that they were just getting better at drilling wells, and we tried to really understand what was under behind that. And what we concluded was the industry wasn't any better at drilling wells. They were better at picking where to drill. They were drilling their best wells first. They were high grading. Mm. And if that's the case, they were going to start to run out of high-quality drilling locations sometime in the near future. And if that's the case then production would stop to grow in, in a lot of these basins. And so we did that in 2019. And we said, look, you know, there's going to be a, a very, very strong tightening in the oil markets going forward because you're not going to get, uh, you're going to have to deal with the headwind of falling productivity, whereas before you've had rising productivity by being able to focus in on these areas. Um, and sure enough, that happened. Now, it happened in a bit of a circuitous roundabout way because COVID meant that we dropped you know, 70% of the rigs, we shut in production, it made the data almost impossible to analyze. But what we've seen coming out of COVID is that the wells that have been drilled uh, are flat to declining in productivity. We haven't been able to get that sort of leverage of, you know, laying down your worst rigs and high grading even more, which is what we've seen in past drilling cycles. And so when the industry did retrace so dramatically in 2020. We said, look, now we're entering into a full-blown energy crisis. And so we were the first people in June of 2020 uh, with oil at $30 a barrel, just having been negative only you know, 90 days prior, we said, there's a coming energy crisis. Uh, and that's been exactly, you know, obviously bearing out now today. Yeah, and speaking about this historical perspective, Adam, you published a video, I think a few months ago, which is kind of a, um, it, by the way, it's a very educational, historic account of the energy sector, and I really enjoyed it. And I'll definitely link to that in the show notes of today's uh, conversation. Um, but you say that based on your analysis, if we continue down this path of renewables, it'll end up in a lose-lose situation with no winners. Can you explain that view a little bit? Sure. I'm not sure there's no winners. I'm sure there's windmill manufacturers that would probably do very well and, and you know, carbon blade producers. But yeah, look, you know, for a long time, we've been focused on this concept, uh, which we've now claimed that going forward could be the next thing that everyone talks about, whether it is or not remains to be seen, but it's this concept known as energy return on energy invested. And, you know, believe it or not, there, there's quite a bit of literature and quite a few books out on energy history, which you would think is terribly dull, but I find it absolutely fascinating. So there's some really good books written on, on the topic. And I think in our quarterly letters, we mentioned a few, but, you know, if you go back, you can really study human history and evolution through uh, the lens of being able to harness energy. And, and it's quite an interesting uh, roadmap and study. So the term energy return on energy invested, we didn't invent that. Um, it, it's in, you know, 
the literature of, of energy economics, and, and there's been quite a bit of work done on it. But it's basically the concept that if for any energy system, it produces usable energy, but it also consumes energy to, to make that, that energy. And that's true when you're looking at hydrocarbons, you have to consume energy in drilling wells. And, you know, you have to, there's this concept of the boundary, how, where do you want to draw the boundary, you know, so obviously the, the actual energy cost to drill the well needs to be included, you should probably put some fraction of what it costs to build the drilling rig divided by how many wells that rig can ultimately drill. Uh, you need to take some amortization of, you know, the, the trucks that need to roll to get there, things like that. Um, and, and so the concept can get very tricky very quickly, but I think the intuition is quite straightforward. The idea that it requires energy to, to make energy. And you can try to measure how efficient different energy sources are at making energy. And for most of human history, and this goes from, you know, there, there's reliable data going all the way back to, you know, 1 AD, um, I would presume that pre-1 AD to 1 AD is, is awfully similar, but let's start Let's start there. So 2,000 years, uh, 2,022 years of energy history. For the most part, we as a people consumed energy in the form of food for both ourselves, animal feed for animals, which would then you know plow the fields and things of that nature, and wood. And wood was used both as a heat source, it was used as a construction material. And that was really basic, you know, the, the majority of what, what we used. There's a little bit of uh, metal uh, that was that was consumed. However, you know, it was incredibly uh, difficult to produce because in order to mine the metal and then to uh, smelt it, you know, you were doing it all, all using wood and charcoal and things of that nature. So it was, it was very, very, very uh, costly and very, very rare, uh, which is why you can look back at, you know, um, major, major uh, battles won and lost by the availability of steel and things like that. Um, very difficult to do. And you can look at how much energy was consumed per person, and you can look at the average population size, and you can look at all these different things. And they were all basically flat for about 16 centuries. Growth in both real GDP and population, energy consumption, it ran about 0.02% per year over that time. So basically zero. And the reason for that was that if you look at that type of an energy economy made from feed, food, and wood, your total energy return on energy invested was anywhere between five and 10 to one. So for one unit in, you got five to 10 units out, probably 10 units at the actual energy source level. And then when you looked at what they call societally, looking at all the different, you know, increasing the boundary, you're probably close to five to one. And with those energy economic numbers, you were able to basically create enough energy to feed yourself and your family and your animals and provide shelter with almost no surplus energy left over. And here's the interesting part. If you have no surplus energy left over, if all of your energy is being used to just exist and then to create more energy, you know, the next year to be able to do it all over again, you don't have any ability to really grow surplus capital either. And, and this is something that I think is kind of an important intuition, the idea that most things in the economy, in fact, I would argue everything in the economy, is conversion of energy from one form into the other. Clearly that's true in manufacturing, but I would argue even in the service industry, you know, I've never seen, uh, you know, to me, a, the quintessential service industry is like a Goldman Sachs investment banker, and nobody consumes more energy than a Goldman Sachs investment banker. So I'm not sure why moving from, uh, you know, a widget factory to services is, is 
is somehow not energy intensive. Um, everything is converting, uh, moving ourselves around and converting uh, energy from one form to another. You could debate that with me, but I, I think that there's ample evidence over time that that's the case. So if you have no surplus energy after you spend energy on creating more energy, you spend energy on your subsistence lifestyle, then you're not gonna be able to grow the economy. And sure enough, that was true for 17 centuries. And then almost exactly coincident in around 1650, the UK basically ran out of trees. They chopped down their entire you know, forest and they were forced to move to burning coal. And they said, you know, we've noticed that this thing burns too. And so let's try to use it. And what they noticed immediately is that the amount of energy that it released per unit of energy in was 30 to one, much, much, much higher than the sort of five to 10 to one of wood. And so now you consumed you know, the same amount of energy for your subsistence life, but instead of consuming one fifth of the energy to create the energy, you only consumed one thirtieth. So instead of uh, you know twenty percent going towards energy, three percent went towards energy, and that difference was free, and that became your surplus capital. And almost overnight, growth rates exploded in population, in real GDP, in energy consumption. Really interesting things like the maximum size of a city went from a million people started to grow. From AD 1 to 1650, there was one million person city at a time on earth. You couldn't get bigger than that because by the time you brought in all the food and all the wood from the hinterlands into the city, if it was bigger than a million people, you basically had consumed all the energy that you were going to uh, have harvested there. And so the whole, you, you were better off starting a new city somewhere else that was closer to its uh, sources of energy. Um, with coal, that was no longer a limitation. So cities started to proliferate. They started to grow. The bigger, you know, you started to have two cities at a million people. Now, eventually today, you know, I think there's 420 cities of over a million people. And Tokyo, uh, the world's biggest city, is you know, 25 million people, whatever it is. So, so obviously, the, the huge seismic change in that in the 16th and 17th century, 17th century, 1650. Then, and, and it's really kind of interesting, you know, you started to almost immediately see that surplus capital compound on itself, including the idea of, you know, looking at steam engines and pumps. And one of the early pumps uh, driven by steam power was used to, maybe no surprise here, dewater the coal mines to be able to get at thicker seams that were a little bit deeper and to be able to provide even more energy and on and on and on it went. Now, all of a sudden, um, and I'm sorry, I, I misspoke a little bit, that, that original 30 to 1 efficiency, that's sort of where we are today on coal. Right. When we actually moved to coal in the 17th century, we probably moved 5, 10 to 1 to about 15 to 1, you know, and that and that uh, difference spurred all the capital. Then fast forward, things got more and more and more uh, evolved. And in the late 19th century, we really harnessed the ability to uh, consume uh, fossil fuels in hydrocarbon form, meaning, um, meaning uh, oil and then eventually natural gas. And Today, those technologies, say technologies, you know, traditional uh, fossil fuel hydrocarbons um, all have an EROEI of about 30 to one. And, and that is where we've opened up uh, effectively the modern world that, that we know today. Energy consumption went off the charts. Like everything went up by, growth rates went up by a factor of 20 as we harness these more efficient energy sources, because now we use next to nothing in terms of our energy base to produce more energy compared to when we were using it all with uh, wood uh, and, and food and feed. So where does that leave things going forward? Um, you know, the downside to fossil fuels is clearly that they emit carbon. 
I don't think that that's something to be taken lightly. You know, we're, we're not uh, you know, climate change deniers. I do, I would say that that I think a lot of people have a lot of hubris and confidence in a lot of very complicated systems when it comes to how carbon interacts with the atmosphere. But I do think that that emitting carbon into the atmosphere is warming the planet and we should probably uh, find ways to curtail that. The question is how we do that and the solutions that we propose what do they look like from an EROEI basis? Because there's really serious ramifications. You know, 17 centuries, we didn't grow. You know, 17 centuries, the average life expectancy was 40 years. Now, I should point out, it wasn't 40 years old because that's how long the median person lived. It's 40 years old because your infant mortality rate was 20%. You know, so these are major, major, major differences from the modern world that I don't think anyone is really prepared to go back to. So we have to, I think, at least address the elephant in the room. And as I'm sure you can imagine, um, what I'm going to say, renewable energy has a very bad EROEI. Uh, you can read in the literature, and and what's interesting is when we first did this math, and, and we obviously relied on a lot of academic sources and things like that, I said, oh my goodness, as soon as we say this stuff, people are just going to, you know, come out and, and just attack us and, and whatever, and say how we're wrong about this and wrong about that. And for the most part, they haven't. And I don't think it's because, you know, our, our, our letter and our work has gotten a lot of attention. Um, and I and, and it just think that uh, it's been mostly because um, the numbers are really are, are really quite hard as far as I can see. So where there is some ambiguity, and I'll address this really upfront, is the idea that if you look at a single windmill, ideally located, that's very different than a grid powered by wind, and it's different for two reasons. First of all, the utilization rate of that asset in an ideal location is very different from the average. There's a huge discrepancy, obviously much more than a coal plant, right? Where, where you put a coal plant doesn't really matter. You can get a lot of consistency from plant to plant. But where you put a windmill, if you put it in a good area, it could have an efficiency as high as 35 or 40%, meaning it's dispatching power 30% of the time. Uh, and the worst is, is sub 10%, which I don't think people realize. You know, That asset that sits there is only dispatching electricity. You know, On average, the whole fleet is like 15 to 20%. Um, the best ones are higher and the worst ones are lower. The second thing related to the first is, are you assuming this one windmill in isolation or are you dealing with the fact that wind and solar are intermittent, meaning the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow and no electricity is being generated? And we are, as we all know, we're not used to living in a power grid like that. We're used to power on demand. You turn the light switch on, it doesn't matter. You don't look outside and say, well, is it windy out? Can I turn the power on? Um, and so, how do you manage that? Well, you're going to have to manage it in in three different ways, really. Uh, one is to build out, this is crazy but true, the cheapest way to deal with short-term variability is just to build out huge redundancies in the system, to build out two windmills instead of one and put them far away. And I think that should begin to show you how expensive and how uh, energy intensive it is to deal with intermittency. You know, the cheapest reliable option to deal with the fact that minute to minute weather patterns change is just to build an entire second windmill. Each one of these things is like 100 meters tall, like 300 feet tall. But that, of course, won't help you get through day and night, uh, particularly for solar, but also for wind. Wind patterns change in the day and night. Uh, and so you're obviously going to have to have some degree of battery backup as well. Uh, batteries, particularly lithium ion batteries, are very, very, very energy intensive to mine all the materials and then to actually manufacture the, manufacture the battery itself. And if you look at all the energy that gets consumed in a Tesla or any electric vehicle over its life, 
about half of that energy will go to actually propelling the car forward and almost half that energy is embedded in the battery itself you know that it's a very energy intensive process which is why you can look you know even the wall street journal wrote about this that it takes, I don't know, 100,000 kilometers before you kind of break even on your energy savings uh, compared to an internal combustion engine. Because up front, the day it comes off the lot, you've consumed a huge amount of energy already. And then you amortize that over time. So um, you're going to have to have batteries to get you through day and night. And then the the larger issue is also, you know, these seasonal patterns of, you know, winter and summer and things of that nature. And to be honest, no one has really addressed that. You know, there's no batteries that are long duration enough to be able to handle seasonal variations and seasonal variability. So when you add all the redundancies of having to build two windmills, having to back that up with lithium ion batteries, and then I haven't even addressed the seasonality because nobody really has a good solution for that. Your energy return on energy invested for both wind and solar dropped to about, in the case of uh, wind, it's between five and 10 to one. And in the case of solar, it's between one to one and five to one. Really quite awful. Uh, I would argue that we've seen uh, over time, you know, for 16 centuries, that type of an EROEI leaves no surplus energy available for growth of any kind. And on day one, it would mean we'd have to divert a huge amount of energy to making more energy, right? So we would take a one-time hit to our quality of life, and then our ability to grow from there would be very, very limited. And I think that is problematic to the point of it being a non-starter. So we need to find something that is going to be able to uh, have a high EROEI, be efficient, and ideally not generate any carbon. Absolutely. Lots of things to unpack there. Jim, where do you want to go with this? Well, I'll just uh, pull on that thread a little bit more. There's a, there's a belief that wind and solar follow kind of Moore's law. You've kind of talked about this a little bit. Um, that eventually these costs will come down uh, due to technological advancement, et cetera. Why is that not the case with solar and wind? Can you dive a little deeper there and explain uh, why we're not going to eventually get to a cheaper place with uh, the ERO, ERI? Yeah, sure. So it, it, it's a huge misconception. And actually, a lot of very prominent energy thinkers and academics have, have talked about how the market and investors have just kind of run rampant with this idea that you know, we're going to have a Moore's law in wind and solar. Uh, and, and it's just really not the case. So what is the case is that the cost of wind and solar have fallen dramatically over the last decade. And what you'll see a lot of uh, is, is a chart that's, that is referred to as the learning curve. And that's sort of, you know, when, when people say, well, it's not quite a Moore's law, they say, fine, it's not a Moore's law, it's the learning curve. And what it shows on the x-axis is the total installed capacity of the technology, either wind or solar. And then on the y-axis, it has the levelized cost of electricity, meaning, um, you know, what can you, uh, on, on a fully baked basis, what can you dispatch power on? Now, none of those are the true levelized cost of electricity because none of them incorporate redundancy or batteries. Uh, but we'll leave that aside. The underlying cost of the wind and solar, just at the unit basis on a level, what they call levelized cost of electricity has fallen, uh, you know, 75, 80% in the last uh, 10 years. And, and if you extrapolate that trend going forward, it will fall uh, more. And they say that's the, that's the Moore's law. And, and so there's obviously some very right off the bat problems with this. Namely, you start to run into issues of physics and chemistry that become problematic. Where with Moore's law, you're starting to run into those now, but, but it did follow a trend where you're able uh, you know, to double 
um, the the density of, of uh, processing power in what, 18 months or whatever, um, you are starting to run into physical limitations on Moore's law and the chip business now too, but you're gonna run into them on the macro side of things, you know, these big, big machines much, much more quickly. And I'll give you just a silly example of that. You know, if you look at uh, a lithium ion battery, the lithium ion battery that they also claim is following Moore's law, it also is not by the way, um, fell from $1,000 a kilowatt hour to $150 a kilowatt hour uh, in 10 years. $100 a kilowatt hour is kind of the magic number uh, where it could begin to become competitive. And so the argument goes, look, we've, we've, we're 90% of the way there. We've gone from 1,000 to 150. Now we just need to go to 150 to 100. But what people don't realize is that, you know, most of these lithium ion batteries have like $100 worth of raw materials in them. You know, so you have to manufacture it, I guess, on a volunteer basis after that, um, you know, in order to uh, keep, get, get at that cost. And, and the same thing's true in wind and solar. You actually begin, some people have showed this, that you violate laws of like thermodynamics by extrapolating these trends out. It's just it's not physically possible. Uh, however, if you want to try to get a little bit more pointed and talk about why the costs have fallen and why actually not only do I think that Moore's law won't hold in the sense that it won't continue on this exponential uh, getting cheaper every year, but it actually might get more expensive, is the idea that we looked at over the last 10 years, what has driven the cost reduction? And it's sort of a funny thing to say, but very few people have actually looked at that. And so we looked at, you know, how much it costs to actually build the thing, how much it costs per ton of steel that goes into it, per ton of cement. We built it up from the bottoms up. We added a you know, manufacturer's margin and things of that nature. The other thing that people don't realize is that in the levelized cost of electricity, there's the there's a cost of capital component in there. You actually, you know, you do this stream of electricity that's going to be generated over the life of the asset divided by its capital cost, but you discount that stream of electricity in order to kind of get a net present value, if you will. And that's what goes into that number. So we built formulas to try to, you know, reverse engineer and calculate what these levelized costs of electricity, how you get to them, and what drove that reduction over the last decade. And if you think about it, the last 10 years have been very, very unique for two reasons. The first reason is we've had the lowest cost of capital in 4,000 years of interest rates. And the second is that every form of electric, um, of energy from peak to trough fell by about 90%. You know, gas in the U.S. peaked out at 15 bucks, 2007, fell to $1.80. Uh, oil peaked out at 140, went negative, but let's say, you know, 20, 15, something like in that on a weekly or monthly end basis. Uh, coal fell 90%. Uranium went from 150 to 19. Uh, you know, everything fell 90% peak to trough. Well, it turns out that in order to make a windmill or a solar panel, you need a lot of two things. You need a lot of capital and you need a lot of energy. You know, you look at um, the amount of energy, for instance, that goes into manufacturing the, I don't have the numbers in front of me, I should, but the whatever, 20 tons of steel, I don't know if that's right or not, that goes into the uh, tower of the windmill, uh, the carbon fiber that goes into the nacelles, the uh, energy that's required to mine the copper that goes in uh, to the transformers and all the gathering system, the cement that gets laid in the foundations, the fact that you need so many of them. And, you know, I think this is a, sort of an interesting fact. If you look at one well in the Permian, one lateral well, uh, shale well in the Permian, and you look at the total energy to drill and complete that well, that will generate the same amount of usable energy as not one, but 10 windmills, each standing 100 meters, 300 feet, a 20-story building tall. Um, you know, you just look at all the material that goes into that. It's just a huge amount 
of energy cost that goes into it. So you spend a lot of money and you spend a lot of energy. And both of those things have been the cheapest in real terms in human history. Interest rates, the cheapest in nominal terms as well. Energy, you know, huge peak to trough reduction. And I don't think it should be surprising then that the cost of wind and solar fell. I mean, you, it, things would have to be terrible if they hadn't fallen. It's sort of shocking they didn't fall more. Um, and so the big question, and, and, and I'll just stop there for a second because I really can't emphasize enough how out of the mainstream that that view is. Like when we speak to investors and colleagues and things like that, most people think that the fact that oil and gas fell in the last decade has been a huge headwind to wind and solar. And they say, well, finally, now that energy prices are going up, wind and solar will be so much more competitive that it'll actually increase adoption. Instead, we're starting to see write-offs of wind and solar assets because people are, are realizing on the manufacturer side, they just can't produce these assets anymore now that we have an energy crisis. Uh, and so I think that it's a really, really misunderstood sector and segment, uh, but it, you know, we have enjoyed cheap money and cheap energy, both of which are on the verge of, or have turned now. Certainly energy prices are moving higher and the cost of capital seems to as well. And the idea that we will be able to manufacture things that are super energy intensive and super capital intensive uh, and see their costs go down uh, is just not gonna be the case. So yes, costs have fallen. Um, there is an analogy to Moore's law in the sense that in Moore's law, costs fall and here costs have fallen, but the underlying drivers couldn't be more different. Adam, I, I find that fascinating. We, we talk about this a mm. decent amount um, across other products um, as well. But the idea that uh, central bank activism over the last 40 years um, has driven a technological revolution in a lot of industries and uh, really pushed a growth overinvestment, a duration. The duration trade has done incredibly well for 40 years. As a result, people have been able to bet on 40-year outcomes and not worry about cash flow. So the value of cash has been very low. And now that mm -hmm. we see that reversing, um, you know, and this is what happens with boom, booms and busts broadly and why liquidity is so important. Um, you see all that malinvestment begin to kind of rise to the surface. I'm curious if you see a significant amount in the next, say, five years of creative destruction happening in the solar and wind space, uh, given that it's been primarily government backed in a lot of ways and also backed by just free money. I think it's a really interesting question. And, and I think that you know, the concept of free money leading to malinvestment, I wouldn't say it's widely understood uh, because you know people seem to keep doing it, but certainly amongst a certain set, um, like, like yourselves and, and your viewers and listeners, I think that that concept is understood, right? If you take interest rates, particularly if you suppress them, uh, if you sort of put the thumb on the scales, you keep the price of money artificially low or just low in, in absolute terms, uh, then you, like you said, you know, duration blows out and uh, your penalty for malinvestment is is de minimis. And so you end up favoring uh, or, not, or not being penalized for lack of cash flows and things like that. And so cheap money leads to distortions of investment. That That's kind of the takeaway. I think it's less well understood that cheap energy will lead to distortions of energy. Uh, but I think that's equally as true. Um, and in fact, it's, it's basically the same principle. There's really not much of a difference, right? All you're saying is that if the cost of energy is is very, very low, in this case, I won't say it was artificially low, but it was uniquely low, largely because of the successes of the shale revolution and the fact that we brought on um, you know, two of 
basically the most important oil and gas fields in the 20th century were brought online simultaneously in the US in a matter of five years. I'm talking about the Permian on the oil side and the Marcellus on the gas side. So you had this period, this sort of wonderful period of cheap, abundant energy, and that led to malinvestment of energy. We, we invested in things uh, that are extremely energy uh, intensive uh, that don't necessarily um, have a high return on energy, if you will. And um, there's a few other examples of technologies that have proliferated in the past 10 years that are very energy hungry. They're a little bit more controversial. And so we can leave them for another day maybe. But, you know, I think of cryptocurrencies and and I think even like our, our favorite pastime uh, and hobby aspirationally now, you know, if you're, if you used to be very, very fabulously wealthy, you aspired to, you know, having thoroughbred racehorses and maybe sailing yachts and things like that. Now, if you're fabulously wealthy, you go into space, which I presume is much more energy intensive than either of the latter. So, you know, we've just, we've, we've done, we've, our activities are all energy intensive across the board. It's because we've had a malinvestment of energy because energy has been cheap. So where do I see, you know, creative disruption or things going forward? I mean, I think, I think ultimately what's going to have to happen here is capital has to come back to the oil and gas business because it's been too long now. Uh, we've seen attrition, uh, we've seen depletion. Um, we haven't developed the next Marcellus and Permian. I think they're they're largely don't exist uh, in the sense that you know we, we've looked certainly in the U.S. There's not two new shale basins waiting in the wings to replace the Permian and the Marcellus. International shale is an interesting question. Uh, we don't think that geologically, we actually think most of the great shales in the world happen to be located in the U.S. There's a few examples. Russia has good shale potential. But you know, there's next to no chance that the Russian shales get developed at this point, given how much Western technology is going to be needed. Um, so, you know, I think money needs to come back into the space. Uh, either the money that's there has to be much more productive, which there's no indication. In fact, we're going the opposite way. Or we need more dollars. Uh, and so I think that's going to be the major investment creative destruction, if you will. It's not maybe what we're used to, uh, but it's, it's going to be this idea of money having to flow back into things that, that were sort of thought to be uh, relics of the past. As far as technologies go, we can, you know, maybe this is a good time to talk about it. In our sort of framework or rubric of, of looking at what we need going forward, we need energy that's extremely energy efficient, high EROEI, and should ideally not generate any carbon. And there's one thing that fits that bill, and that's uranium and nuclear power. Uh, for one unit of energy in, I told you hydrocarbon is about 30 units of energy out. With nuclear power, it's 100 units out. So it is really, you know, for the investors on the call, if you think about the efficient frontier and you have a trade-off between risk and return, this is like off the frontier. You know, everything else is typically a trade-off between carbon and efficiency and one unit, you know, to trade for the other. And this is just off the charts. You know, this is the quadrant you want to be in. Um, and so we're starting to see now, uh, I think, a very frank discussion about nuclear power. Uh, we're starting to see, I think, a more honest assessment of the risks of nuclear power, which are very, very low. On any metric you look at, nuclear is extremely safe. Europe has added it to its green taxonomy. France is an ambitious new program. The UK does as well. Uh, Germany is 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 obviously the having just decommissioned its last nuclear power plants or some of the I think they have a couple still, but is um, more reluctant. But even Germany, there, there's there's uh, a little bit of um, a new discussion, at least. China certainly uh, has a massive new build reactor program going, uh, and India looks to be the next to go. So, you know, I think, actually, after having been very pessimistic and very sort of cynical for a long period of time, I'm actually becoming very, very optimistic, because if the end game of all of this 
is that we finally embrace nuclear power, we could end up with this step change in energy efficiency that is almost as important as it was in 1650 going from wood to coal. You know, and if that's the case, we could just be on, you know, on the on the verge of, you know, a, a period of great prosperity. It doesn't feel that way these days, but, you know, it, it, it's possible. So, so I think that that is where you could start to see a lot of um, really interesting change um, happen. Yeah, I mean, there's so yeah. many directions to go here. Uh, Niels, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is so many things to to talk about. Just sort of anecdotally, uh, Adam, just to share. I mean, I live in Switzerland where there's no windmills, I can assure you, uh, because it doesn't really, the wind doesn't blow much down here. But I'm Danish by background, and we have a lot of windmills and a lot of uh, technology. And, and there's a couple of really interesting things. Before I go there, I just want to say that, I mean, the whole nuclear debate in Europe is, of course, uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, having grown up in the uh, late 60s and 70s, I do remember the uh, campaigns against nuclear. And uh, certainly in Denmark, it was pretty visible. And even as a young kid, I, I remember it. Um, and of course, we decided not to have nuclear. And then, of course, the Swedes decided to build a nuclear 15 <laughs> kilometers away from the capital of Denmark, which is completely crazy. <laughs> Anyways, I want to shift gear a little bit because I see another trend and I see this happening in Denmark specifically. And by the way, the new windmills that the Danish and, and other producers are producing now, we're not talking about 300 feet. We're talking about 800 feet tall windmills. And so there's a, there's a new interesting twist to all of this. And that is we're now seeing a fight not between the greens and the blacks, so to speak, in terms of fossil fuel. It's between the greens and the greens because it's the climate guys and the nature guys because nobody wants these windmills in their backyard. Yeah. And in fact, in Denmark, all of last year, only three land-based windmills were set up, which is nothing, really. And if you look at the plans uh, that uh, the Danes have for becoming, uh, you know, in, now suddenly we want to be independent of Russian gas in no time, like in eight months, right? It's not going to happen. But we're going to have to build a lot of windmills, they say, uh, onshore as well as offshore. So I'm curious in your research, in your work, whether you're starting also to notice these discussions between the two types of greens and what you think that might do to the whole debate about renewable energy. Yeah, we, we are starting to see that. And frankly, I think it's great because, uh, you know, when, when you have somebody that, that appears to be arguing in favor of oil and gas and you have someone that appears to be arguing in favor of environmentalism and part of the argument from the environmentalist is, well, look, when you factor in the externality of killing everyone on earth, then all of a sudden our technologies are, are even more economic than yours. You say, well, that seems like quite a high cost and, and what have you. And it makes it very difficult to actually debate whether or not any of these technologies work. And I would argue that wind and solar and electric vehicles clearly don't work. Um, if you have sort of environmentalist on environmentalist debate, uh, I, I think, in some regards, uh, it is more healthy because I think you end up with less of uh, what I would call almost a, a religious dogmatic argument here that just becomes, well, look, do you want everyone to die 
uh, so that you're rich or do you want to save the world? You say, well, what kind of a conversation is that? You know, I'm sorry, your windmills aren't going to work because like you said, they're 800 feet tall. You need to have two times redundancy. And then you need to have child mind cobalt from the Congo aggregated and and brines from South America with lithium produced, brought together and manufactured in an extremely energy intensive, by the way, dried by natural gas fired heaters to create batteries that last for 10 years and then end up in a toxic landfill. Like it's not a question of saving the world or not. Your technologies don't work. So I think at least, um, you know, if you have environmental on environmental debate, I frankly might not agree with either side in some of these debates, but at least I think it, it focuses the issue and requires a little bit more reason and rationality. I'll give you a great example. You know, we're running out of battery metals. We're not that we're running out. It's just if you look at the demand projections, we won't. We don't have enough. Um, and nickel tends to be uh, a key choke point. And so if you look, you know, you have cobalt and and in different, you have cobalt, lithium, uh, and nickel. Those are major. There's there's other in there as well. Uh, but that's the, those are the three that a lot of people talk about. Um, cobalt, to some degree, people have tried engineering cobalt out of batteries to greater or lesser success or failure. You know, cobalt tends to stabilize the battery and prevent it from catching on fire. Lithium ion batteries are horribly flammable. Um, you know, the, the last company that tried to remove cobalt was Samsung, and that's when all their phones started to explode in people's pockets. So people haven't figured it out, but there's at least talk of getting. Nickel is in almost every battery formulation. It seems very unlikely that we're going to engineer nickel out uh, of the batteries. Uh, and there's not a lot of nickel, uh, battery-grade nickel available. You can get nickel in two forms, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but one is a nickel sulfide and the other is a nickel laterite. And in a nickel laterite, uh, you have to process it to make battery grade nickel. And the processing is one of the most CO2 intensive processes in the world today. Fine. So no one debates that. There's now been talk in order to meet Volkswagen's demand for lithium ion batteries of developing a major new nickel project. It is a nickel laterite, so it will be very CO2 intensive to upgrade that nickel. And it's in Indonesia under very dense jungle rainforest cover that will need to be clear cut. So you have a situation now where if you look at the amount of CO2 that will be released, because one of the cheapest, most effective ways of sequestering CO2 is, is, is through photosynthesis, photosynthesis of forests, um, you're going to clear cut this forest produce a nickel laterite, process the nickel laterite, very CO2 intensive, to make it into a battery, to put in an electric vehicle, to get a very efficient diesel car off the road. First of all, forget the money that you spent that you could spend reforesting other parts of the world. You'll have emitted more CO2 in that whole process. You'd be better off just leaving the whole thing alone. Uh, and, and that's starting to get attention. And so there's environmental groups that are starting to talk about that on both sides of things. So I think that that's kind of interesting. You know, like we've been talking about stuff like this for a long time, but no one's interested in hearing from us uh, because, you know, you know, we're perceived to be not environmentally friendly, which even though we have a huge investment in nuclear, and I think we're very environmentally friendly. Uh, but so maybe environmental and environmental debate, uh, you know, can help, can help reframe some of these issues and, and get people thinking about things honestly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to send it back to you, uh, Jim, but I do want to ask one question uh, before I do so, because you mentioned things like, you know, where can we find oil and gas? Where is it likely to to be? And not that I want to make this a Danish-centric centric, uh, conversation, but the Danes have again become a little bit, you know, in the middle of this because of the Arctic and because of Greenland uh, and other places up there. And I've, I've seen some... 
um, studies or research talking about uh, a U.S. geological survey that estimates the Arctic resources are something like 90 billion barrels of oil and 1,670 trillion cubic feet of gas. Um, half of that belonging to Russia, as far as I can tell. What do you make of this? I mean, is there any viable uh, truth to this? Uh, And could we even get to it if it was there? Well, those are some interesting questions. I think certainly, um, you know, a lot of activity in the Arctic is becoming uh, more feasible, you know, as as temperatures do rise. Um, You know, there's shipping now in in lanes that were not feasible, you know, 10 and 15 years ago. so I, I I do think yeah the geological prospect is there. No one has done any work uh, in the Arctic for you know quite some time. Um, so it's it's very very early. It's certainly not something that could be turned on you know quickly. Uh, and frankly, a lot more work needs to be done just on the resource to you know understand the geology uh, better. But yeah, there there are some very very large numbers coming out uh, cu- coming out of the Arctic regions. Um, you know I think offshore areas both in the Gulf of Mexico and abroad offshore also are holding a lot of promise that are probably less, you know, harsh weather and things of that nature than, than going into the Arctic. Uh, but ultimately, you know, where the next generation of hydrocarbon basin is going to come from um, it, it is an open question. There's not a clear sort of path forward, although I, I do tend to think that it involves uh, a lot more investment in the offshore side of things. So my father's actually a PhD structural engineer designed offshore oil platforms. So I grew up in this space. Um, and one of the things I find interesting is, you know, uh, some 30, 40 years ago, we were already talking about kind of nuclear and how nuclear should be more uh, prevalent and used um, used more. It does seem almost too good to be true. Why have we not? Um, I mean, obviously, we all know kind of what happened, uh, you know, all of the nuclear disasters that we've seen uh, historically, but we're talking about you know, going to Mars, right? There's there's incredible advancements in technology in the last 20, 30 years. Are there other things that we're missing in terms of costs to nuclear, um, you know, uh, environmental costs, things that maybe we're not talking about enough to, just to look at the whole picture? Well, look, I think when people talk, uh, you know, when critics talk about nuclear, there's the idea of nuclear waste, which I think is manageable and, and addressable. So in the sense that some of the new designs of these small, what they call small modular reactors, uh, end up with dramatically less waste. But even if we had to store nuclear waste, it's it's so small um, that, you know, it definitely needs to be handled properly and for, in a secure fashion. Uh, but, you know, quite frankly, it's not, it's not dangerous in and of itself. I mean, I have to be careful, you know, it is radioactive, but like right now, nuclear waste is kept on site in a lot of uh, nuclear power plants because there's not a good place for long-term storage. So it's not the fact that it is horribly radioactive in and of itself that it needs to be had. It's, it's really a security issue. France does it uh, very, very effectively. And the U.S. has a very, very strong option in Yucca Mountain, which is a topic unto itself and don't want to get too bogged down. It's been very controversial going back and forth. Um, the other thing, though, that I think is is needs to be addressed when it comes to nuclear power uh, has to do with the cost and the cost overruns and and our collective ability to build nuclear reactors today. Um, And so, you know, there's the sort of new fourth generation nuclear reactors. One was built in South Carolina. Eventually it was abandoned and scrapped uh, because it it was like, you know, three times over cost and years and years delayed. Uh, China rolled out its AP1000, which is the equivalent of that design. 
Um, it suffered some cost overruns, but it's doing much, much, much better in terms of being able to bring those online on, on time, on budget. Uh, part of the reason for the cost overruns in the last 10 years, of course, has to do with the fact that following Fukushima, everyone kind of changed their security and, and safety standards and everything was checked and rechecked. And, and you know, I think that's that's appropriate. But what it ended up doing was it ended up basically meaning that all the money that was already put to work on assets that were being built had to be torn up. And there's great examples of, you know, a billion dollars worth of concrete had been poured on a foundation. And then uh, all of a sudden the standards became more exacting and you looked and it wasn't level to, you know, whatever of an inch that it needed to be. You had to tear the whole thing up and start over. So, I mean, that that becomes, you know, particularly midstream becomes almost impossible to get over. Uh, and, and now if you look in the West, our ability to, to build large scale nuclear reactors, you know, I think there's a question mark around that. Now, as far as economies of scale and Moore's law, I think if you did have a nuclear renaissance, we should be able to get better at building them and, you know, get some of that learned experience back. You know, you look at the nuclear reactors that were built in the 1960s and 1970s, and they're all operating safely and efficiently today. Many of them are having their permits extended. So, you know, we know how to do it. We knew how to do it, you know, decades ago. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to do it today. But as of right now, uh, there have been cost overruns, certainly, uh, on, on new built reactors uh, in the West. One of the things that people are trying to do to address that is the idea of what they call small modular reactors. And there's two that are very, very high profile. Uh, one is backed by Bill Gates's Breakthrough Energy Ventures, and the other, I think, is about to list via SPAC. And, and those promise to deliver smaller reactors, small, modular, meaning that it's going to be a, a uniform design and you can sort of manufacture it in a central location and send it all around the country and eventually the world. Uh, and then there's some safety designs in it inherent in sort of these new designs that are supposed to be a lot safer and a lot more manageable. And it's supposed to get around two things. One is the idea of, you know, the NIMBY, not in my backyard. These things are supposed to be smaller, uh, which, which should have less opposition. I'm not so convinced that that's true. I mean, I don't think when, when someone builds a nuclear reactor, if you tell them, well, it's smaller, I think that people will still be pretty upset. But anyway, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, and, and then the idea of it being modular to help drive down costs. Now, one thing I would say, and I haven't studied the issue as closely as I would like, because both these companies are still private, but when it comes to energy and the history of energy, uh, it's very unusual in fact, I want to say it's never been the case where small has been better and more efficient than large. Energy tends to benefit from, from scale, from amortizing fixed costs over a larger output. And so you tend to see big power plants and big oil rigs and things of that nature. Um, so this would be a departure for that. But maybe 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 it's the case. Um, you know, we'll, have, we'll have to wait and see. So those are things that are trying to address the, the cost issue. China, like I said, right now is probably the leader in being able to manufacture what I would call, you know, more conventional nuclear reactors in their AP-1000. The West is sort of un unclear if we still have that skill set. This is, uh, you know, the title of this pod is Top Traders Unplugged. So let's let's dive in and get a little deeper. Are there any names, um, you know, in the nuclear space, uh, uranium broadly, that you like um, if, to the extent you're able to talk about it um, or specific areas uh, that you'd, you'd, you know, have people look at. So tricky. Yeah. So look, I, I think that, and Lee and I were talking about this this morning, you know, new uranium producers um, are, are tough uh, in the sense that it's not a big universe. There's two producing companies, Cameco with their assets up in Canada, Kazataprom with their assets in Kazakhstan, and then a smattering of smaller development stories. I got to tell you, uranium prices bottomed at $19 a pound. 
most of the development stories need $75 a pound uh, in order to get funding and move forward and generate any type of a return. They'll tell you less. And when you look at really ultimately, I think where uranium needs to go for the banks to be able to step in and finance these things and for there to be a return, I, I think it's really 75 across the board for most of them. I'm sure I'll get some angry emails and phone calls afterwards. Um, so, you know, where are we today? Your spot prices are in the mid 50s. Uh, it's moved up, like I said, from 19. You're getting closer to some of those being viable, interesting projects, but, you know, it's tough. Uh, so if you're speculative, you know, you can definitely play in that space and try to, you know, try to catch that move. If uranium, I think, ultimately goes to between 75 and 100, maybe even a little bit higher uh, on a sort of sustainable basis, those companies should all do really, really well. Um, and I won't mention names there because, um, we have one that we disclose that we own, and that's NextGen. I think it's probably the highest quality development story that's out there. There's a smattering of others, and, and you can definitely get beta playing those on a move higher in uranium prices. But ultimately, there's a little bit of speculation there because none of them really work at today's spot price. Uh, Cameco and Kazataprom, on the other hand, you know, they both run, and um, they. I think if uranium prices do move higher, there's certainly upside potential in both those names. And of the two, from a really interesting perspective, I think it's probably you know, Kazataprom, just because given all the issues uh, with Russia and the Ukraine right now, that stock has sold off dramatically uh, and represents, you know, a deep discount to Cameco today. But, you know, that those are the names that we own. We own both of those, uh, the sort of large bellwether, really the only two producing uh, uranium companies in the world. So kind of, kind of crazy. Um, you know, and, and just to tell you how bad this bear market was in uranium, you know, if you look at the what they call the cost curve in a commodity, which is to say every mine in operation and its cash cost of operation. Typically, if you get the price of copper down, let's say, to within the 90th percentile of that cash cost curve, that tends to be a good fundamental bottom for copper prices. Uh, you know, when when 10% of the mines operating today can't do it profitably, that's a pretty good indication of a, of a near bottom. In uranium, you took it down so that you had a duopoly with two producing companies in the world and they couldn't produce in their flagship mines based on the price. I've, I've always like, I don't know how you can get the price so low that a duopoly can't can't make it work. Um, so, you know, it's a unique market structure and it, and it makes it tricky. So we own both those names. We own NextGen, like I said. Uh, we own some uh, uranium or, or what's now, you know, used to be the uranium participation unit. Now it's the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. It's a vehicle that basically uh, issues shares uh, to the public closed-end fund, and then it goes out and buys physical uranium. That's going to be basically a, a, a tracker. Again, they might argue that they have certain features that makes it, you know, have growth prospects. But it's basically a vehicle to track the uranium price. So not not the best, you know, sort of hyper differentiated views there. I think you stick with the bellwethers when it comes to uranium. Uh, one of the areas that I think is really really interesting, which we talked a little bit about, is U.S. natural gas stocks, and I think those could really, you know, be violent movers higher this year. And the reason for that is, you know, with all this energy crisis going on around the world, and for your US uh, listeners that might not be aware, you know, on a global basis, uh, gas prices are like $30 in MCF, and they got as high as $50 in MCF. On an, on an energy equivalent basis, that's the equivalent of $300 per barrel oil. And in the US, with the rest of the world at 30, in the US, everyone's talking about how expensive gas, natural gas is, it got to seven. So you have this huge difference. And the reason is, you know, the US is basically an island. We produce gas and we can export a little bit of it through LNG. I shouldn't say a little. We're now the world's largest LNG exporter after having not 
imported, the being the world's third largest importer 10 years ago, now we're the world's largest exporter, but we still have more gas than uh, we know what to do with. And so the market has still basically been in a surplus market. And that's why there's this distinction between the US price and the world price. But what happens if the US gas shales sputter a little bit? What happens if they're not able to fill the next slug of LNG export capacity that comes online? Well, then you're gonna lock the US price into the world price. And so you could have a move from seven to 30 uh, very, very, very quickly. The gas stocks today, by the way, are pricing in like four. You know, if you look at Range Resources, which is a big position of ours there, they have the, one of the best remaining locations in the Marcellus, in the southwest corner of the Marcellus Shale. Uh, you know, if you use last year's you know, PV10, which is effectively their, in their 10K, they have to publish the value of their reserves using 380 gas. Um, you know, the stock still has upside today. If you put in today's price, the stock uh, is like a double or a triple from here potentially. So, I mean, th these names uh, have a lot of value even at today's prices and let alone, I mean, if where gas could go, I think some of these names could be very, very, very strong performers. I want to, I mean, we obviously unfortunately don't have unlimited time with you, uh, Adam, but I do want to maybe go in two different directions um, before we end. Um, one thing was, and it kind of relates to what you talked about uh, with natural gas. I mean, a lot of people think of U.S. as being energy independent. And I'm certainly no uh, energy expert at all. But what I do understand is that, yes, the U.S. has a lot of oil, but it's the wrong kind of oil. And so actually you import quite a lot of, uh, or the U.S. imports a lot of oil every day because their refineries um, requires a different kind of oil to what you have in the in the ground. My question to you, because obviously it's we're, we're doing this conversation in the middle of the Ukraine crisis and the Russian sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. And I think both Jim and I uh, are of the belief in line with, P with Peter Zion's work that we probably are in a, in a process of deglobalization, et cetera, et cetera. So how are you guys thinking about this uh, idea of uh, just oil in a world of deglobalization? If you have the wrong kind of oil, you're still kind of, I guess, vulnerable to some extent. Um, how, how are you guys thinking about this whole issue of deglobalization and and getting the oil to the right people. Yeah, uh, look, so I think I think it's a great question. And I think ultimately, you know, it's not in any of our models or numbers today. And, and we'll have to see how things progress. And, you know, I, I really have no great insight into that. I think that the current energy crisis was, the groundwork was laid long before Russia invaded the Ukraine. Uh, I think it has to do with the fact that we basically, you know, we could talk about our neural networks and our machine learning and our uh, you know, productivity models. You know, basically, we diverted a trillion and a half dollars from e efficient hydrocarbon development into fairly inefficient wind and solar development. And we need to spend that money again. We need to write off, you know, what effectively won't work from an energy intensive perspective of wind and solar, and then reinvest that money into into oil and gas. Um, and so Ukraine brings all these issues forward. Uh, deglobalization uh, makes things worse. And we could talk, and I will talk about, you know, how I think that plays in. But ultimately, I think it's important to realize that this crisis was in place before the Ukraine, and no matter what happens, uh, will be in place until we spend that money to, to bring on that productive capacity uh, again. Now, as far as, you know, deglobalization goes and, and things of that nature, uh, I do think it's going to have uh, an impact. And, you know, I think people have become used to the idea that maybe we were running too lean of a supply chain for finished goods during COVID. I think that became, you know, the mantra of, you know, yes, you want to have 
you know, high return on capital by bringing your supply chain way down. And people said, well, wait a second, maybe we should have the security of that supply chain in case there's disruptions and whatever. Um, I don't think people have made the leap to say, well, actually, we probably need to secure the supply chain upstream as well, both to just be able to provide the extra material to build out the supply chain you know that's gonna that's gonna require uh, a lot of energy and materials, uh, but then also we probably want to have some redundancy in the in the raw material supply chain itself to be able to have inefficiencies like you're talking about the wrong kind of crude going to the wrong refinery. And and the analogy I'll make there is that you know we operated that kind of a world uh, for a period of time during the Cold War, uh, and you know there wasn't sort of uh, you know complete free fungibility and things of that nature. And when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s, there was a huge bear market as all that material flooded into the world commodity markets. And so from the early 90s really to 2000, you could argue that there's a huge amount of you know excess Soviet material, whether it's uranium, whether it's steel capacity, aluminum smelting capacity, what have you, uh, that sort of made its way into the world market. And then it was eventually absorbed by the late 2000s and or by the late 1990s, and China rose as a source of demand and things tightened and it became a bull market. So presumably if that led to a huge amount of excess supply, then going in the other direction, Will will have the opposite effect. Uh, like I said, you know those numbers aren't really. We're not factoring that in yet, but I think that that could definitely be a tailwind to resources going forward. And I'll tell you something else. You know, the idea of pulling demand forward and inventory hoarding because of rising commodity prices is something that no one's factoring in either. And you know, in the 1970s, a huge source of demand uh, came from the fact that. Uh, with inflation and with rapidly rising prices, there's an incentive to hold inventory, uh, to buy things today, and whether that's at the raw material side. So you actually create demand because of the inflationary expectations. So I think in a lot of different ways, we're entering a period in a playbook that really no one has dusted off in 40 years. I think you know we've been in a de-inflationary, de disinflationary period for 40 years. We've had a hyper-financialization uh, of the world um, and, and we've had a basic neglect for raw materials. Uh, and I think that entire playbook needs to be reconsidered. And so what are the ultimate ramifications to that? I mean, I think it's gonna be huge tailwinds. Uh, and I think this, this decade, as my partner Lee likes to say, when we look back in 10 years and you say, what was this decade all about? I think this will have been the decade of shortages. Yeah, no, I couldn't uh, agree more. Um, you know, we haven't even spoken about gold, the fact that countries like Egypt are buying lots of gold suddenly, that countries like Australia suddenly wants to audit their gold. The fact that Germany, of course, 10 years ago asked for all their gold back. Um, and we haven't talked about commodities like neon, where Ukraine has 90% of all uh, neon supply comes from, from Ukraine. Um, but I do want, before we kind of end up, I do want to ask you a little bit about kind of the link between energy prices and, and you know, GDP or, or growth, et cetera, et cetera. My understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that there is a kind of a certain level of uh, when, and I, whether it's oil or whether it's energy as a whole, I'm not entirely sure. But when it hits, you know, something like 7% of, of world GDP, that's when you start seeing an impact uh, on, uh, on, on demand, on growth. And that is, as far as I understand, is is around $180, and at $130, we're at about 5% of GDP, so to speak. Uh, does that tie in with kind of some of your, your analysis that we're not quite at a stage where this will be a real limited factor, but on the other hand, we got to 147 uh, in 2008 uh, on oil, so 
It's yeah. not inimaginable that we're going to get to $180 uh, in the next 12 months. For sure. And, and I think, you know, I think there's a couple of things, you know, uh, and yes, there's a lot of debate and a lot of ways to measure it and, and what have you. I also think that one way um, that, that people often don't do uh, is they look at sort of global numbers. Uh, but I think really you have sort of a marginal barrel that could get squeezed out. Uh, and I think that's in the West, you know, so I think we're, we, I think it's a lot easier, for instance, for us to reduce our energy demand in the West, if we all had to, than it is when that unit of energy is going to urbanize someone from an agrarian lifestyle into an urban lifestyle in India, for instance. And so I think if you look at the numbers just in the US, what's 10% of GDP, that's very different. Energy is, you know, energy expenditures as a percent of GDP is different in the United States than it would be somewhere else, even at constant prices. And so I think, you know, I like to look at sort of Western US uh, energy consumption as a percent of GDP, primary energy, at about 10% historically has has served as a little bit of a, a drag or, or fairly dramatic drag on economic growth. Uh, and so based on our numbers, yeah, probably at $150 oil, um, you know, you're through that level. And I think things uh, will probably slow um, following that. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. And it's not as though you enter into a recession immediately, nor is it the fact that oil prices don't move higher from there. Uh, so I think if you took oil to $180 a barrel on a spike, I think that's entirely possible. Uh, I don't know that the world economy really works with oil and the other forms of energy moving up commensurately uh, at that level of, of real dollars per unit of productive energy. I think um, you get back, ironically, I think it's tied to the EROEI, too much of your economic system is being directed towards simply making energy, which in and of itself is the driver of growth of the economic system, right? So it's like, it's the fuel of the system. And if too much of that economic system gets pushed towards uh, making its own fuel, uh, it stalls. Uh, and I think it's, I think the word stall is really appropriate. I think it stalls, you know, literally stalls. Yeah, no, absolutely. Before we leave you, Adam, um, there are many places we could have gone today and we will definitely have to get you back uh, later in the year to, uh, to to touch on some of those topics. But I do want to give you a chance to maybe um, talk about things that you thought um, we missed and we should have brought up if there is a particular burning topic that you think, yeah, I definitely want to get that out to uh, to the audience. Um, so I'll let you... Uh... No, I think I think we really covered a lot. You know, one, one thing that I, that I would like to mention and and you know we do have investment products but whether it's ours or anybody else's you know i'm agnostic um you know we get a lot of calls saying have we missed this move and we try to measure that and and yeah you know a lot of these uh stocks and a lot of these sectors have, have moved up a lot off their bottoms uh, however believe it or not this is one of those crazy things where if something is 100 and it drops 90 percent to 10 and then it doubles to 20 it's still off 80 percent and so um I think that the key point here is when I look at energy weighting in the S&P 500, when I look at the price of commodities relative to the price of stocks, um, when I look at materials in the S&P 500, these are still at basically all-time lows. Uh, you know, energy, just to give you a context of the S&P, I'm sorry, I'll be American-centric here, but to be in the context of the S&P 500, has averaged about 10% over the long term. Uh, in, in a real bull market, you know, a top was made in 1980. It reached 30% of the S&P, pretty shocking. Um, it got to 1.8% of the S&P in 2020 from 30. 
So, you know, that's down, whatever, 97%, even from 10 to 1.9, it's down 80%, right, from its average. Uh, you know, today it's 3.9%. So you'd have to more than double the weighting in the S&P 500 from today just to reach average. And you would have to basically go up eightfold or sevenfold, I guess, whatever, uh, in order to reach the old peak. Now, I'm not saying it should go to the old peak. I think that would be irrationally exuberant if it made it, you know, it's, it's all time high in terms of waiting. However, when you ask, is it over? I mean, it's far from over. And so right now, for instance, you know, this is the 26th of April. Today, we're seeing, um, you know, pullbacks in the last couple of days in the raw material sectors and in the stocks or whatever. And, you know, I, I think that that for people that really have a long-term view, these need to be looked at as, as potential opportunities to buy if you're inclined, because I don't think we're anywhere near the top right now. Yeah, no, I think that's a good uh, point you made there. I'm glad we just uh, managed to uh, to get that in. Adam, this has been a tremendous conversation with so much knowledge shared from your experience. So uh, thank you so much for doing that with us today. And by the way, make sure you follow and subscribe to Adam's work. You can, of course, find the links in the show notes for today's episode. And as you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a true global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro series. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.